Science Talk will begin after this short message. Hey there, I'm Brian. I'm Andrea. And we're with Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. And you've probably heard about CRISPR. So I think this is, uh, you know, something that everyone now is grappling with, is how do we, how do we, uh, how do we proceed? There are no easy answers. That's Jennifer Doudna, co-discoverer of the CRISPR gene editing tool, talking with us on our Base Pairs podcast. We'll be back in a bit to discuss what she's concerned about. Stay tuned. Welcome to Scientific American Science Talk, posted on October 25th, 2017. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... But by the time you get to Frankenstein, what you have here is really a misunderstood creature whose father has abandoned it. That's Stephen Asma. He's professor of philosophy at Columbia College, Chicago, and he's the author of the 2009 book On Monsters, An Unnatural History of Our Worst Fears. He was last on the podcast 10 years ago to talk about his trip to the Creationist Museum in Kentucky. And with Halloween approaching, and with me having finally gotten around to reading his book, I gave him a call to talk about monsters. He was in his office, so you'll also hear some of the sounds of Chicago coming through his windows. The book is called On Monsters, and you talk, obviously, in a book with that title, about monsters all over the place. Uh, But then toward the end of the book, you say, one will search in vain through this book to find a single compelling definition of monster. So given that, where do we begin? (laughs) Okay, yeah, that's not a, uh, that's not me throwing in the towel and saying, you know, there's no, there's no sort of there there. Um, I, my argument here is sort of based on uh, how Wittgenstein thought about language, um, which is, he very famously said, you know, language is as language does. And people who use English know what a monster is in a sort of general sense. And it has a lot of sort of related meanings and offshoots. So sort of picture it like, um, you know, like a a prototype concept, uh, which is an idea in cognitive science where you have sort of a hub and then the spokes come off the hub uh, uh, to form a wheel. And so there's a sort of a central notion of what a monster is and then these sort of variations that come off of it. And this, I think, is a better way to proceed because it doesn't start by trying to create some dictionary definition first, because as soon as you get out in the world in the history and anthropology and the psychology of monsters, you're going to find some monster that doesn't fit your definition, and then you're stuck, and it looks like you don't know what you're talking about. So my approach there was just to say, look, here's how language really functions, and we're going to follow this. So my book has built up a whole series of monsters, a kind of taxonomy of monsters. And by the end of it, you can see what some of the interrelated themes are and connections. So that's why I did it that way. Okay. So let's talk about that, that uh, historical aspect. Your, your book talks about different monsters having currency at different times in, in human cultural history. Yeah, that's um, that's really kind of a, a fun feature of the of the book, which is if you look at the ancient world, uh, and I should say as a quick uh, preface that this book focuses on Western monsters. A whole other book could be written on the wonderful monsters of the East, but I had to sort of, you know, I had to I had to rein it in somehow. 
in any case, if you look at the ancient uh, Western monsters, you'll find there what I call sort of the natural history monsters. It's pretty clear that the Greeks and the Romans were primarily interested in the kind of monsters that appear either as omens or warnings. Uh, and here we're thinking uh, about, um, you know, what, what they considered monstrous births, which we now call genetic and developmental disabilities. We're thinking about uh, conjoined twins or babies born with a cyclops uh, face um, or additional limbs or missing limbs. The ancient world thought of these as um, warnings about, you know, what might happen in a, in a given political fight that was coming or in a war that was coming, a, ba a battle. And so this was one of the senses of monster. And some, some fairly ugly stuff occurs here because it was part of Roman law that if you found a, a conjoined twin or a, a deformed baby, you were supposed to drown it right away because it was, it was some kind of threat to the overall uh, social stability of Rome. And so there's a lot of fairly ugly stuff in the history of, of uh, in sort of monsterology. But the other way they thought about monsters was that there were species of other creatures living in, you know, the, the sense of geography here was pretty dim. So they said, well, living in parts of, of Asia or in parts of Africa, we have whole races of cyclops. We have whole races of dog-headed men, which they called the kinocephali, or uh, a race of humanoid creatures where they have no head, but their face protrudes out of their, their chest. And these are called the blemii or the blemies. And so you'll see in the ancient world a fascination with, with these natural history monsters. And that continues up into the medieval period. But then in the medieval period, you get the influence of the sort of Christian tradition and eventually the Islamic tradition too. And there, the monsters are more like demons and sort of spirits that can possess you. And the rise of the witches and demons are sort of dominant in the medieval period. And then I would say, you know, if we just sort of fast forward quickly up to more present times, I think the way we use the term monster is really with regard to the moral monster. We think of human beings who have crossed some line and, and sort of dehumanized either through psychopathology or just moral bad decisions and engaged in monstrous behavior. So we frequently talk about serial killers as being monstrous and this kind of thing. So the, so the book ranges through a whole bunch of different types of monsters, but there are some interesting threads. And the word monster itself, you point out in the book, is from the Latin word monstrum, which derives from the root monere, which means to warn. So a monster for the ancient Romans was literally an omen, a warning. Exactly. A warning. Um, and one of the interesting things you point out is that even though there has been this evolution of the categorization or the, or the idea of monsters as being uh, first these kind of... Uh, you know, unusual births, then to the spiritual and now to the moral, there are pockets of cultures where the older ideas might still prevail. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, we shouldn't think of it like it's a, just a linear progression, but rather these are, we should think of them, um, even though I think certain kinds of monsters dominate a, a given historical era, Nonetheless, it's more like a, a, a sort of taxonomy that still exists in all of its forms. 
So, for example, we're still fascinated by natural history monsters because that's really what cryptozoology is. We, you know, we want to know, is there a Bigfoot? What about the giant squid and other <laughs> potentially monstrous creatures that we've not discovered yet in the oceans? So that tradition is still alive and well. And then there's pockets within the developing world and even within the United States where uh, demon possession is considered absolutely real. And I was talking to a student just the other day who was telling me her grandmother is an exorcist, and she she has performed many exorcisms on people who have demon possessions. So this stuff is alive and well, uh, even in our current uh, day and, and our current era. Which is kind of staggering, but we have evidence of this. There are news stories from time to time about uh, some poor child who really gets murdered by their parents or uh, or a, an exorcist who their parents bring in because they're under the impression the child is possessed and in the course of trying to do the exorcism they kill the poor kid yeah this is a a horrifying um sort of result of um really irrational thinking and superstition gone wild and it's lamentable as you said and yet it it persists of course, the the Enlightenment project, you know, was believed that if we just had enough science education, we would clear out the these dark areas of the of the mind, so to speak, shine a light on it, and then there wouldn't be this kind of uh, superstitious um, violence, and and of course all the other stuff too, like prejudice based on superstition, and you know this is. It's interesting that that was a huge debate uh, between the Enlightenment figures and then the counter-Enlightenment romantics. And right here at that fissure is where Mary Shelley's Frankenstein drops, you know. And here we're we're celebrating the 200th year anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's just exciting to see that that problem has not gone away. And even now we're still debating, uh, was the Enlightenment project, you know, did it fail is it, did we just not press it enough? Do we need to sort of um, gear up again and improve science education? Because I talk to my students and many of them think of themselves as being very scientifically literate. You know, they, of course, you know, maybe self-report is not the best, uh, you know, measure here, but they see themselves as being very scientifically literate because they have access to the internet and Bill Nye the science guy and all that. Uh, and yet you, you press them a little further and they're also very superstitious. They have a lot of beliefs that would never pass muster in any kind of scientific testing. And so it's interesting, like the more uh, scientific and intelligent the population gets, do monsters dissipate altogether or do they simply um, retreat to other areas where you know they weren't before? And so, for example, there's a lot of anxiety now about monstrous AI and artificial life and technology and so forth. So it's an interesting question. Yeah, I was going to ask you for an example, but th- there it is. I mean, they're they're thinking of, uh, for example, GMOs might be monster corn. Exactly. I think that's a good example of how um, w- maybe most people living in the developed West are not really worried about demons and, you know, "Quote unquote monsters," but nonetheless, we have a lot of anxiety about uh, genetically modified organisms because we are into the genome in ways that no previous generation has ever been able uh, to to do. 
and uh, that that has some frightening. You know, you'll, you'll frequently hear people mention Frankenstein syndrome or or you know, are we playing God? And and the, this is even a secular minded sort of response because um, you could end up with a kind of breakout organism where unintended consequences of the genetic modification have now turned back and are, is harming the human population. That's definitely a real concern. So you you do spend a fair amount of time in the book talking about uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, why, you know, t- today Frankenstein is a joke almost because the uh, most famous depiction is the Boris Karloff hulking creature and and uh, we have Mel Brooks's take on it. And so, it, right. you know, it's just kind of funny. Uh, I know that there have been serious treatments. There was the Robert De Niro film a few years ago where they really tried to get back to the original book. But why was Frankenstein, the book, so important in the history of monsters? Yeah, I, I mean... It's, it is hard to see it with fresh eyes because, as you said, so many uh, you know, treatments of it in the media have either distorted it or made it just you know, ridiculous. But I think if you go back to the original novel, it, it bears uh, repeated readings. I think it's, uh, it's an, still an exciting story because, it, um, first of all, it wasn't, it wasn't the first story like this. And many people know from the Jewish tradition, the golem, uh, predates Frankenstein as a giant creature which was brought to life by the rabbi in order to protect Jewish people from anti-Semitic pogroms. And uh, and he turned it on, you know, by writing truth on its forehead. But like the Frankenstein creature, it was just a giant, bumbling, uh, powerful creature, but also stupid. And it turned on you know, its own people. And so it had to be deactivated. And now the legend is that it's, you know, it's basically sort of in suspended animation in the, in the uh, temple in, um, in the synagogue in Prague. So Frankenstein was not the first to do this kind of thing, but it's pretty clear that at that moment, there was a very strong tension between the, the incredible advances of science, because we're talking about basically, you know, the early 1800s, um, and the fears of scientific reductionism. So here, here science was growing by leaps and bounds and solving many uh, medical problems in particular, but also people felt um, that it was turning the human being into essentially a kind of very complicated machine. So there was all the anxiety about losing the soul, let's say. Yeah, I mean, if you could make a, a pastiche or hybrid creature from parts of other um, other humans and, and maybe other animals and then just charge it with electricity sort of in the Galvani, you know, technique and, and spark it to life, then, then the sort of spiritual status of human beings became, um, it, it came under question for a lot of people. And I think that's one of the things that continues to be troubling about Frankenstein for many people. Because that, that tension hasn't really gone away. And, and I would say one last thing about Frankenstein in terms of it, why it's so compelling is that it gave, um, it gave us what I would call the sort of liberal interpretation of monsters. It's sort of the first really clear articulation of this. And when I say liberal, I mean, you know, small l liberal, the Western tradition of increasing uh, tolerance. So what you found in Frankenstein was not just the kind of evil doer that you saw in, in earlier monster stories, 
like Grendel and Beowulf, for example, um, that thing's just pure evil and it's the spawn of Cain and, you know, you've just got to dispatch it to hell or whatever. But by the time you get to Frankenstein, what you have here is really a misunderstood creature who, whose father has abandoned it. And it's pretty clear from the novel that if he had just been embraced by his parent and by society, he would not have gone on a killing rampage. So you begin to get what I'm calling this liberal view of the monster, which is you begin to see the interior of somebody that on the outward face of it just looks horrifying. Now you begin to see, oh, there's a psychology there. This person is wounded. This person is hurt. You know, maybe they, they need a hug or, you know, something like this. And this can, this is the kind of monster story that we've had a lot in the 20th century. There's many, you know, versions of this now. So Frankenstein got that going, I think. Yeah. And um, you talk about the fact that the mob in Frankenstein that comes after him, there's, there's a way to interpret it where they're the monsters. I mean, you even see this in uh, sort of cartoon versions nowadays, like what is uh, this whole franchi- franchise of Shrek, you know, <laughs> the ogre that's misunderstood and then the villagers chasing him down, you know. So we have a lot of these these kinds of stories. Um, you know, it's a very famous uh, film by, by the filmmaker who made the original Frankenstein uh, called Freaks, Todd Browning. And Browning's film... Uh, Freaks was sort of banned for a long time, but if you see that film now, you'll see that it too has this sort of wonderful um, embracing of diversity message because the Freaks, uh, and here we're talking about people with, um, you know, the bearded lady, there's some, some of the characters have microcephaly, so they have very small heads, you have people that are just different, and they were, you know, so-called Freaks, and in the story here, What's developed is that they end up being really the the morally upright and impressive characters of that movie, and it's the regular human beings, the regular quote unquote normal people, end up being the really monstrous characters, and that is a an interesting reversal of what I would call the old pagan monster stories, where you just have heroes versus monsters. Now it's much more complicated. We'll be right back after this. Hey, Brian and Andrea again, co-hosts of the Base Pairs podcast from Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. We call it the podcast about the power of genetic information. That's why we're thrilled to share our latest episode, where we talk about how American science once took a wrong turn toward eugenics. Come find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Now more with Stephen Asma sideshow attractions were really popular in the 19th century in in the U.S., thanks to Barnum and others, and even into the the second part of the 20th century. I remember as a little boy in the 60s going to a sideshow at the Barnum & Bailey Ringling Brothers Circus and seeing, you know, unusual people there. Yeah, that's, uh, I did too, and um, it's interesting that now, there is a revitalization of this tradition, but it is a, a really, it's a knowing, critical um, sort of version. So I have, there's a, a bunch of folks in uh, Brooklyn, and you know, Brooklyn's kind of ground zero for hipsters. And so there's a sort of new movement 
some of them are my friends, uh, and they host a Congress of Curious People every year at Coney Island, where people who are different um, will actually display themselves. In other words, they're not being exploited. They're actually part of a new tradition which wants to talk about difference and curiosity. And so they'll have what used to be, you know, called freak shows. They'll have shows and then they'll have academics and professors discussing, you know, what's the biology of these, of the, the anatomical differences here. Uh, cultural theorists talking about what's the cultural sort of implications here. So there's kind of a new version of this that, uh, that's kind of, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's well aware of its history and it's moving beyond that. Um, I think there's some, a lot of interesting stuff here. One is why are bodies that are different um, so um, compelling? Attractive? Yeah. It, yeah. Why do they draw us in, you know? And I think it's naive to pretend that that is just, you know, um, always some kind of lascivious, you know, morally reprehensible response. I think it's a fairly human response to, to difference. And the, the mind is a cognitive system and it processes the world and it categorizes the world. And when you meet somebody who's a conjoined twin or they have extra digits on their hand or they're missing digits on their hand, this is a kind of, um, it disrupts the traditional categories of how the world is structured for us, the cognitive categories. And what we now know from increasing, you know, studies in psychology and cognitive science is that that, is a, that arouses the cognitive system and it draws your attention and you become curious. And this is fairly natural. And if we didn't have this power uh, or this ability, you know, we might not have lasted very long uh, during our evolution because it's very good. It gets you to key in on things that are not quite, you know, fitting with your usual categories. Um, now, what happens as a result of this, of course, can be sad because it can be can lead to exploitative ways of thinking and putting on uh, quote unquote freak shows. And we all know the perhaps the story of the Elephant Man, uh, John Merrick or Joseph Merrick. And so there's some sad stories there, but to be interested in bodies uh, that are different is, I think, fairly human. And if we could engage in that in a way that's not exploitative, then it, it's, I think it's positive. Yeah, you have this marvelous story in the book of a, of a little boy who uh, is at a museum of curiosities, oddities, uh, with his mother. Oh, yeah. And, and uh, I think it's in one of the footnotes even, and he's... He's just like so freaked out by <laughs> by these uh, malformed fetuses that are on display or whatever they were, and uh, the mother is concerned that he's gonna be affected in a bad way by this, and she offers to take him home. And his response is, "Yes, his response is no way. We're not leaving. Uh, let's stay here." And he's gasp, you know, he's gasping in horror and excitement at these exhibits. And this was in this was in London. It's a museum that people can still go to, and I highly recommend it. It's the uh, Hunterian collection in the Royal College of Sur Surgeons there, and it is one calamity after another collected by an amazing uh, early surgeon, John Hunter. And the, yeah, the boy is absolutely astounded by some of the things he's seeing. And like any parent, you know, the mother's just worried, is this going to, you know, mess up his head? 
and uh, and yet and, and so this really gets at something important, which we are both attracted and repulsed by certain kinds of difference. And this is an interesting, you know, aspect of monsterology in general. Like sometimes we're we're really drawn to the thing as being different or strange, but also sometimes the monster or some of these so-called freaks that we're talking about can be difficult uh, to, to to look at and shocking, and they activate uh, the emotional system, the affective system. So you might even get into a kind of you feel the emotions of fight or flight, um, and this is you can see this most clearly, I think. Um, in the horror genre, because what you're doing is you're you're paying money to go see like some fairly horrifying thing, and it's simultaneously enjoyable and frightening at the same time. And that is a sort of a fascinating uh, psychological experience. And here we are at Halloween, where you know everybody is doing this. You know, you go to see not only a monster chase somebody around like an old Wolfman movie, but now we're into this whole new layer of like uh, torture films, you know, the Saw films and this kind of stuff. So it's pretty interesting that as a culture, we pay money to go see this stuff. Yeah, it's fascinating. I don't I don't particularly care for horror movies, although I watch The Walking Dead on TV, but that's free. Um, <laughs> and and you, you talk about zombies, but I want to get back to um, The Elephant Man for a second, because that was directed by David Lynch. Yeah. Um, Produced by Mel Brooks, by the way. Was it really? A lot of people don't know that. I didn't because, know that. Yeah, Mel Brooks uh, uh, has a, a a brand called Brooks Films, where uh, I believe it was he and his wife Anne Bancroft who is in Elephant Man. Oh yeah, uh, that's right. And I think uh, Mel Brooks uh, produced some more arty movies uh, that he did not write or direct under that name Brooks Films, and and most people don't realize. But speaking of Young Frankenstein, yeah, Mel Brooks and David Lynch came together to give us the Elephant Man movie. Um, but it's directed by David Lynch, and and you spend a few pages on David Lynch as uh, as a director who really concentrates on some of the weirdness and monstrous aspects of what we would otherwise probably think of as just regular day to day life. Yeah. He's the, I think he's the master of this. There are, there are others too. Um, they don't sort of get the kind of notoriety because I think this kind of artwork doesn't have the kind of commercial success that just the traditional monster story would have. But I think somebody like um, David Lynch and writers like Poe, Edgar Allan Poe, um, they were able to, to show this kind of underlying, almost existential horror to just the everyday thing. And this is because I think, um, you know, it, their work is informed whether they, they know it or not by the Freudian revolution that occurred in the 20th century. And whether or not you like Freud as a scientist, which I, you know, I think he's, he's dubious in that regard, nonetheless, he gave us really the full appreciation of a large part of our psyche being unconscious where many of our motives and our feelings are happening at a level that we don't have direct access to during waking life. You do get access to it, you know, during dreams and perhaps in other kinds of states of consciousness, but David Lynch is able to really bring that 
that those kind of unconscious associations that are, are fearful and, and have anxiety into his films so that even mundane scenes, you know, I mean, he does some really way out talking tree kind of stuff, but he'll also just have you, you know, sitting in a room and two people talking and he's able to somehow make that seem really ominous. And that's where I think his gift lies. Um, and of course you can see the difference between uh, what I think of his most coherent film, which is probably Elephant Man, and one of the, the earlier films, which is Eraserhead. And if you watch Eraserhead, it's just one crazy thing after another, deeply affecting, though. Like, I, I think it just goes, when you watch one of his films, the film goes under your neocortex, straight into your limbic system, and just, you know, thrashes around in there. And basically, you you hold on to it for days and days because it, it affects your emotional system. But a lot of this is happening sort of at the unconscious level, and he's he's a master of it. Yeah, I had a friend who insisted I see Eraserhead, so I finally watched it with him. And uh, when it was over, I said, "Okay, I've seen it. I ain't never seeing that again." <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> so. Uh, but uh, there's a great quote in in the book about. Quentin Tarantino is fascinated by somebody cutting off somebody else's ear. David Lynch is fascinated by the ear. Yeah, that's right. That's a good way to, I think that ca that encapsulates all that I was just saying in a much better way. And uh, in, in Blue Velvet, I think this, this uh, ear that somebody finds is a, a crucial part of the plot. Yeah. It's been a while since I saw Blue Velvet, but I do remember it, these close-ups on this sort of ear just sitting in a field, as I recall. And that's classic Lynch, you know. Um, and that's a, that's a kind of, I think other horror writers, um, fa famous ones like um, H.P. Lovecraft, really, they, they detected this too. They said, look, there's, yeah, we know about the monster kind of horror. That's, you know, just somebody chasing around somebody else. But then he says there's another kind of horror, which, which Lovecraft calls cosmic horror. And here it's harder to express, but it's more like an existential sense that like the whole, the whole cosmos or the universe is not a safe place. You know, it's not here for your happiness. It's, uh, it's potentially, you know, just nihilistic, you know, through and through. And that's the kind of stuff that I think many 20th century film filmmakers and, of course, 21st century artists are playing with beautifully. And I, I think a lot of that goes back to the, the Darwinian revolution too, because in a way Darwin gave us a world too, which is, is not designed for our happiness. It's really a, it's a world of survival of the fittest and that has implications for monster stories and horror. So speaking of Darwin, uh, you talk a little bit about how you could look at all the different uh, artificially bred dog species as types of monsters i mean compared <laughs> right. com compared to the the starting point which let's say it's the wolf you know a chihuahua is a freaking monster yeah it's it's true in fact that's what darwin says um in his notebooks he there in in my book on monsters there's actually some some fairly original research on on darwin because I went and looked at the the notebooks um, very carefully with an eye to his comments about monsters and monstrosity. And there he does say, look, most of the monsters that we have are the creations of artificial selection, like these dogs that we've been uh, composing over, over, you know, hundreds of years. So now we've got dogs that 
well, we wanted to make their face shorter and shorter, and now they can't even breathe properly, or we wanted to make their legs look away a certain way, and now they their their hips pop out with dysplasia uh, regularly, and so we've got all these really monstrous dogs. You know, we want to make them small so they fit in our purses. Well, well, as a result of that, you've got these creatures that would never survive in the wild, can't reproduce without our help, and in every other way seem fairly monstrous. And so Darwin was the guy that pointed that out. And what's what's sort of interesting about Darwin and monsters is that before he hit on the theory of natural selection as the actual mechanism by which, you know, evolution occurs, he did dabble for a while with the idea that that um, monstrous births might be a launching pad for evolutionary trajectories. But he, he after researching that uh, for uh, a couple of years, he rejected it. And he found by interviewing and discussing it with many uh, breeders uh, that, in fact, the, the results of some of these um, monstrous births uh, were, were almost always uh, dead ends, that the, the animal would die or the animal would be unable to reproduce. And so he, not, he, he eventually uh, rejected this as a mechanism, but I thought it was kind of interesting that at least for a while he considered it. Now to, to, to uh, fine-tune that idea a little bit uh, with Darwin and, and the breeding uh, is the idea in the book that because of the slight variation in our genetics compared to our parents, uh, we're all monsters. You hit on it there. Because of what we now understand about genetics, we now know that diversity and hybridizing, you know, of gene information is really, that that's the coin of the realm. That's how evolution works. That's not some deviation from, you know, the cop, some weird precise copying mechanism. And so, yeah, after Darwin, we, we are all monsters and we might as well embrace our, our monstrosity. And this is a big difference from how somebody like Aristotle would have thought about it because Aristotle thought, oh, every human being has the exact same, he didn't know anything about genetics, but he thought there must be some form of the human and that it replicates, but the material part messes up the information and creates diversity. And so he thought we, it was sad that we were all, you know, diverse in this way. And that's because he didn't understand how biology really worked in this sense. After Darwin, we understand that we are all hybrids and composites and uh, we're all sort of mashups. And we also know that it's in being a mashup, that's what gives us uh, adaptive strengths because, um, having diverse uh, responses to environmental changes is what, what has helped our species, you know, or any species really adapt. Now, why were you compelled to spend what had to be many years to do the research to write this book? Before this book, I had written a book on uh, museums and the development of natural history museums in particular called Stuffed Animals and Pickled Heads. And in doing that research, I came across um, a lot of uh, medical monsters, uh, because there's really the development of natural history is very much involved in this kind of material. And then um, that that mixed with my own sort of phobia, which was I, I have kind of a fear of deep water. Um, and, you know, like kind of a, I don't know, like a sea monster. I'm not, I don't really believe that there's any sea monsters, but I definitely have some anxiety about swimming in murky water. And, and apparently, this is a fairly universal fear 
which may have evolved because, you know, we were under threat by crocodiles quite a bit during the evolution of uh, Homo sapiens. But uh, those things together, they sort of combine. And I thought, well, you know, as a philosopher, I don't really see any philosophers looking at things like uh, monsters or there's been a couple of people looking at horror, uh, but I thought it would be a fun sort of a research angle, and it turned out to be a, a gold mine. I mean, there's just so much philosophically interesting stuff there, but also history, psychology, even anthropology and cultural evolution um, are interested in, you know, why do hybrids, you know, why do they become such good memes? Why do they travel so well through culture? So it's so much fascinating stuff arose as soon as I started to get into it. And I thought, well, I got to write a book on this. And that's pretty much how it happened. Yeah. And we should say that the word monster in a medical context has a, a real meaning. It's not, we're not calling uh, people monsters to be pejorative. Yeah. Here we mean the word here entirely with, you know, quotes around it um, and not in any sort of pejorative sense, but it's, it's pretty clear that if you study uh, genetic or developmental um, abnormalities, you're studying what's called teratology. And teratology is literally, teratos is literally the Greek word for monster. So it, you are literally doing monsterology if you're doing teratology, which is a legitimate medical uh, field. So anybody out there doing uh, monsterology in your lab today, you know, happy Halloween. Exactly. Happy Halloween. I'll be back in a moment. Hi, Brian and Andrea, one last time. Before you go, we want to tell you why we're so excited about the power of genetic information. It helps us put food on our tables. It tells us about our ancient ancestors, and it can even help us map the brain with DNA barcodes. We cover a whole swath of subjects, anywhere the power of genetic information plays a role. So check out Base Pairs, the official podcast of Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Search for Base Pairs wherever you get your podcasts to learn more. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read about how the common shrew shrinks its head to better deal with the cold of winter. Monstrous! And follow us on Twitter where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. 